You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. <laughs> How many listeners do you think we lose doing our... <laughs> Every time I hear it on the podcast, I'm like, oh, God, this is terrible. No, it's actually really bad, Um, which is sad because I feel like we have the potential to be as good as Brittany Broski is at the British accent, except she blows people out of the water every time. Her accent is amazing, and I do not compare. Maybe we need to commit to it more. We do. We need to study more. We need to start watching uh, Love Island, actually. All right. Do you have an extra like 10 hours to spare? Uh, Funny you should ask. I don't know if you're in quarantine like I am, but I got nothing else going on. I would watch. Okay. If a new season came out, I would watch it, but I have no idea when it comes out. I think it's a summer thing. Listeners, let us know if it comes out in the summer. (laughs) Watch it. If you listen to this podcast and also watch Love Island, then I feel like we'd probably get along. Um, So please reach out to us. We actually have a, uh, a mutual friend that watches Love Island. Um, I don't think you would expect him to watch Love Island, but he started watching it, and he loves it, and he talks about it all the time. Who? Michael? Michael. <laughs> it's always... Every time you mention a mutual <laughs> friend, it's always him. Anyways, we know a lot of Michael, so you won't be able to guess which one it is. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to another week in quarantine with the Good Evening Girls. I'm, I'm Chelsea. Grace. Damn it. Okay, damn I, it. Okay, okay. Go for it. I, I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. <laughs> and this is Two Girls, One Crossword, your favorite weekly Podword crosscast. Yes, we're here. We're doing it. We're back. Um, <laughs> we're back from last week. <laughs> um, should we just hop right into it? I don't think we have any corrections corners this week, so... No, do it, baby. All right. Uh, hits and shits, then. Uh, I'm going to start us off with a hit. Um, I think you and I both really like when we see crosswords that do fun things with the grid whether it's like there was that one year where the new york times released a heart-shaped grid for valentine's day we like when yeah. we see fun shapes there's even one if there where were... it was like a panda face or a panda something. face right yeah so the sunday new york times uh, on august 30th by olivia mitra Fram- Framke, i believe or Framke, uh was the theme was the butterfly effect um and so the definition of butterfly effect was kind of like interspersed throughout the puzzle but the grid made like the like little black squares made a fun little pattern of a butterfly, which is fun. So, oh, I thought it was going to be of Ashton Kutcher's face or something. Yes, actually, it was. Um, the butterfly was actually both of his eyes. Um, so, okay, just, it like the really cover like a movie of the poster film. then. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, also from that puzzle, just a shout out to last episode, uh, twenty nine across psychic energy fields. And the answer is auras. Okay, listen to episode 57 if you want to learn about auras. Thank you, Grace, for a great uh, topic. And also let us know if you have any psychic powers because I yes. am interested. Please. I actually did the New York Times this week a couple times. Ooh, actually, I noticed that because I went in to do one of them and I saw that it was already finished, which is fine. I just, well, I, you don't I, usually I do I, them. I thought I cleared it after. No, it's fine. It's whatever. Okay. Well, anyways, I hope you're not, like, trying to go for it, because I, like, asked for a reveal on one of the things, and it was like, this will stop your streak. I was like, uh-oh. I hope Chelsea no, I, I don't a have a streak. Okay. If anybody out there thinks that I have a streak on the New York Times crossword app. <laughs> the only streaks she has are on her underwear. Okay. Um, I like Stop the New revealing York Times. my secrets. <laughs> Wednesday, September 2nd by Margaret Siegel. Okay. This one was just fun in general, but um, some things I liked were... 
I just felt like it was fresh for the New York Times. 14 across, I can't blank, and it was even. Yes. Like, I can't even. And then 16 across, something reminisced in the movie Grease. This was part of a themed answer where it had to be um, like a throw verb. Okay. But I was convinced the first, I had summer as like the first word. And I was convinced it was summer loving. It fit. And I was like, well, how can it, but then it didn't fit on the down. And it was summer fling, but. Nice. Whatever. Whatever. But someone please put summer loving um, into a crossword. We're not asking for much, okay? That, like literally That is literally nothing. all I've asked for all month. Seriously. So. Her entire life. So just be respectful of that. Yeah. That Thanks. and a Dyson blow dryer. And that is all I want, literally. <laughs> okay. Um, and an air fryer, apparently. Um, yes. Anyway, I also did the New York Times this week. Uh, speaking of, like, hip and fun New York Times to do, the Tuesday New York Times, September 1st, by David Steinberg. Uh, the theme was 52 across. Gender identifiers often separated by slashes. Uh, the answer is pronouns. So, Yay. Uh, And then it was connected to 18 across, like the 52 across featured in this puzzle. And the answer is personal, so personal pronouns. Um, And there's actually, in the grid, speaking of like fun grid formations or whatever, uh, there was a big slash down the center of the puzzle, like, uh, you know, like you see in between your pronouns when you list them Mm -hmm. in your email or whatever. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Uh, And so there'd be clues on either or answers on either side of the slash that were just, you know, regular answers. But if you looked at them, you would see that the ending and the beginning of each of those answers would be pronouns. Like for instance, 22 across eponym of a certain tennis stadium in Queens. And the answer is Arthur Ashe, 26 across group of bison is a herd, but the end of Arthur Ashe is S H E for she. And the beginning of herd is H E R. So she, her, then we have 33 across, nevertheless informally, is but hey. Uh, 35 across, New York City Opera House is the Met. Would it be they, them on either side of the slash? Uh, 46 across, post-workout feeling is ache. 47 across, cats with Himalayan hair, long with long hair and blue eyes. The answer is Himalayan. And so it would be he, him on either side of the slash. So that was fun. I didn't even, I did this puzzle. I didn't even realize that that was a... Did you do it on paper? No, I didn't. But oh, when okay. I now that I have it printed out though, the the grayed out squares, like not the black tie ones, are really light. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't that know. Or I just it. didn't pay attention. I was just, you know, tearing through it. She was, um, but she was I, going so quick that she had yeah. no idea. I did like this uh, puzzle. There was one that I put down for my hit. One down tattoo subject who might disapprove of tattoos. Mom. It's mom. <laughs> so good. It was good. That was on my yeah. hits as well. That was a good puzzle Oh, my overall. gosh. That was on your hit? That was a fun puzzle. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like I've been kind of, you know, boycotting the New York Times, but they had good people this week. And I think the one today was supposed to be good, but I didn't, I wasn't able to do it today. Oh, I didn't do it today. Maybe I'll talk about it next week. Yeah. Um, Stay tuned. Speaking of New York Times puzzles, I did the Monday New York Times, and this is not a shit necessarily. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, so let's just get into it. Okay. I'm not a, I'm, it's not a shit, but I'm going to get into it. Monday New York Times, August 30th, Anne-Marie Crinion. Uh, God, I forget what the number... I didn't put the number down. But it was hit Broadway musical set partly in Paris for short. And the answer is Les Mis. But I entered it in as Les Mis with an S. The answer was Les Mis with a Z. And I was like... I filled it in with a Z and I was like, this is offensive to me. It's an S. 
So I like, of course, I went to the internet right away and I was like, is it Les Mis with a Z or Les Mis with an S? And it's like a huge debate online. Okay. Multiple people are like arguing with people about whether it's a Z or an S. So I think it's just funny. But I found a really interesting, like funny kind of like spoof article on Vulture called Is It Spelled Les Mis or Les Mis from 2012? Um, And the two authors of this article basically interviewed each other back and forth and kind of shit on one another about whether it was a Z or an S. One great point that I pulled from this article was the official website for Les Mis is Les Mis with an S, lesmis.com. Mm-hmm. So do with that what you will. I mean, I'm not, I'm, like I said, it's not a shit, but like, you know, you know. It's not a shit, but you're on thin ice, okay? <laughs> um, I am Team S as well. I've never spelled it with a Z. I'm not a barbarian. No, I but agree. But you can't just throw Zs. Like, that's what you name like cozy corner and then you make... But you spell corner with a K and cozy with a K. You know, they both already are C's, so it's still alliteration. And then you change the Y's to two double E's. It's like, no, no. Okay. People are going crazy these days with spelling. And I just, I just literally cannot. So I did the Washington Post Sunday by our friend. Love it. He's our we friend. Think he's We're not our his friend. friend. Yeah. <laughs> Evan Bernholz. And Evan, there are a lot of friend. <laughs> this one is always fun, although it's really big, so I don't always do it. That's what she said. But um, <laughs> some nice. clues that I liked were, well, this is a little shout out, 78 down Chicago style hot dog topping. Relish. Relish. I, at first I put, in, I put in pickle at first. Uh, nice. But it's relish. And then uh, I thought this was a fun way to clue Iowa, which is crossword ease. We see it a lot because it has, it's a, we need a word for it, like vocabularily desirable. You know, a word that that has a lot of, (laughs) yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. Um, Anyway, so to clue Iowa, it was 72 down, state where the band Slipknot formed. Yes, very nice. And I did not know that, but now I do. Now you know. Yeah. Um, There was one, I believe, in the Sunday New York Times um, that was, uh, it was something about John Wayne, and the answer Uh was Iowan. Honest to God, or no, it was like John Wayne at birth, and the answer mm-hmm. was Iowan. And me being out of my freaking mind, literally convinced myself that John Wayne was Welsh, and he had originally been named Iowan, like Ewan or something like that. Oh and Matt God. looked at me and was like, "Chelsea, that says Iowan, like the state, like he was born in Iowa." And I just revealed something really embarrassing about myself on this podcast. So you're welcome, because I am out of my mind. So. Yeah, that's a that's a stretch, even for you. I don't know what was wrong with me. I was tired this morning, I think, when I did that puzzle. Because I did it this morning mm-hmm. on the Thursday. Okay. Um, did you do the New Yorker at all? I don't think so. Uh, the I Monday did. New Yorker One. was really good. Um, the Mondays are so difficult at the New Yorker, but I learned so much through doing them. Just, like, there's so many interesting, like, trivia things that they put in there. Mm-hmm. Um First of all, the opener from the Monday New Yorker, August 31st. This is by Anna Schechtman. Um, won across annual outdoor drag festival that began in New York City in 1984. And it's Wigstock. It's a great opener. Oh, I did do that one. Um, and then 15 across semi-homemade casserole popular in the American South and Midwest. The answer is Frito Pie. I um, knew it had something to do with Fritos. I was like, yeah. I don't know what this is, but people definitely put Fritos in some type of... 
pasta dish. Yes. So it's like a casserole, apparently. Um, I We live in the Midwest, and I've never had a Frito pie. So, Grace, next time you come over in, like, three years, you bring me a Frito pie. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not against it. I love putting chips and stuff. It gets, gives mean, it a good crunch. Although I'm not a huge Frito fan, I have to say. Can we make, like, a Lay's original? Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. Lay's with ridges, ruffles. Let me tell you what the ingredients are. I don't know if you look this up. Basic ingredients include chili, cheese, and corn chips. So we can be any corn chips. We don't necessarily have to do mm-hmm. Fritos, okay? Um, additions can include salsa, refried beans, sour cream, onion, rice, or jalapenos. This is basically taco dip. Yeah. With the actual chips already inside. It's so. like a taco dip that you eat with a fork. It's just an excuse to, like, <laughs> eat straight taco dip. White Which, people. <laughs> you don't need an excuse when you're around me. Eat whatever you want. Okay? Right, and eat however you want. If you want to eat with a spoon, if you want to eat salad with a spoon, I'm not going to judge you. True. So... Yeah, I, I liked that puzzle overall, but I wanted to call out those two. Um, uh, yeah, so that's what I, is that all I have? That's all I had. That's all week. I have. Oh my <gasps> gosh, should we flip the coin? Oh my god, I guess we should get to the coin and Get right into it? Let's do it. Okay, I'm flipping okay. the coin now. <gasps> it's heads. Surprise. It's you. It's me. I haven't gone first in a while, so. I know buckle in folks it's gonna be a bumpy ride so let's hop right into it my topic comes from the monday new yorker august 31st first anna schechtman uh seven down organization that once funded the museum of modern art partisan review and the paris review and the answer is cia <gasps> right Ooh. so i thought that this was super interesting when i filled it in i had no idea and i was like what do you mean why the heck would the cia fund these like artistic endeavors right i was Mm -hmm. very confused um and so of course i was like i'm not gonna do this as my topic it's probably like too much of a deep dive um you know like the cia stuff can get kind of heavy and i have like between 15 and 20 minutes to teach anybody anything yeah (laughs) and you know what i said i said you know what eff it i'm gonna do a very general overview so you know just bear with me here just enough that we could use it at like a bar trivia thing exactly the next time we go to a bar in like five years exactly thank you so keep this in your back pocket folks uh before we get into the cia i'm just going to give you some context about these organizations you know let's start with the museum of modern art it is also known as the moma Uh, The MoMA was established in 1929, it's in Manhattan, uh, and it's considered one of the largest and most influential museums in the world. Have you ever been to the MoMA? I think you told me that your aunt used to take you, potentially. Yes. Okay, cool. I've actually never been to the MoMA. Wait, is that the one with the steps? Or is that the Met? No, I believe that's the MoMA. I've never been to the MoMA, and I grew up in New Jersey, but we always went into Philadelphia, not New York, so I missed a lot of the New York museums, sadly. But, like I said, it's in Manhattan. Um, it holds a massive collection of modern and contemporary art, and it's considered to be one of the best collections of modern Western masterpieces in the world. Some artists you can see if you go to the MoMA would be Francis Bacon, Dali, Frida Kahlo, Matisse, Monet, Picasso, Pollock, Van Gogh, Warhol, Liechtenstein, among many, many others. They also have a sculpture garden there. Apparently it is beautiful. Um, Wait, did you say Van Gogh instead of Van Gogh? I did. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Is that how you're supposed to pronounce it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know. Uh, I believe that is how you pronounce it. But hey, someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I, I know nothing. Uh, let's move on to the Paris Review. 
the Paris Review was established in 1953, and it's a quarterly English literary magazine. It was originally based in Paris, but in 1973, it moved to New York City. Uh, and it, the Paris Review is, like, one of the most famous literary magazines, like, in history um, that is still running. Uh, it has published work from some of the most famous and, like, world-renowned modern and contemporary authors, people like Jack Kerouac, Adrian Rich, Samuel Beckett, like these types of people have been published there. They've had interviews with Ezra Pound, Ernest Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, Faulkner, Pablo Neruda, William Carlos William, who we talked about in one of our episodes, uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, and among hundreds and thousands of other famous authors have been featured in the Parish Review. And a lot of famous authors that you know today, a lot of them either, you know, published one of their first stories there or kind of got started by being published in the Paris Review. It's pretty cool. So then let's move on to Partisan Review. Partisan Review was established in 1934 in New York City. It's a small quarterly magazine for literature, politics, and cultural commentary, and it was founded by the Communist Party USA. Uh, initially, the magazine was for proletarian lit and, like, cultural critique and commentary, uh, but it kind of evolved over time. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, some authors that have been published in the Partisan Review are... Uh, James Baldwin, T.S. Eliot, George Orwell, uh, Susan Sontag, and Saul Bellow. Sadly, the Partisan Review no longer publishes. They kind of ceased publication in 2003. So now that we've covered the basics of those three organizations, why the heck was the CIA interested in any of them? I don't know, um, but it seems suspicious. It seems a little bit suspicious. So like I said... I am going to be just, like, dragging my nail <laughs> gently atop the surface of oh, a God. very, very, very large iceberg, okay? okay. Like, I thought you were going to say chalkboard. Yeah, no. The Titanic saw more of the iceberg <laughs> than what I am going to be describing to you about why the CIA was involved in these, um, you know, whatever, organizations. Um, I got a lot of my information from, like, archived articles on Independent, Salon, Vice, New York Times. If you are interested in reading any of these articles, they're all amazing, super informative. A lot of them do really cool deep dives that I am not going to be doing here. Please just DM us and I will send them to you. Um, so let's start with the Cold War. Mm. It always starts with the Cold War. It always starts with the Cold War. Okay, so the Cold War. And this is a massive, massive oversimplification. It was a period <laughs> of political tension between the Soviet Union and the United States after World War II. She's yeah, right. that's right. That is true. Technically, it is not yes. a lie. <laughs> um, but the tension between the Soviet Union and the United States was not just political, and it was not just economics. Right? Um, it was also a clash of cultures. It was personal. It was personal, okay? So, again, more over oversimplification coming your way. The Soviet Union and the Communist Party leaders basically would portray the United States as a cultural black hole in contrast to their own culture. Um, and the U.S. accused the Soviets of disregarding the value of culture, um, instead subjugating art to, like, controlling policies. So the Soviets were like, Western culture sucks. It's a black hole. And then the U.S. were like, no, you are controlling culture too much and not allowing it to flourish. And so they kind of like butt heads. Like I said, massive oversimplification. So, of course, of course, of course, in the years following World War II, the U.S. saw itself responsible for preserving and fostering, quote unquote, 
real culture for all Western civilization. Um, and here is a quote from historian Francis Stoner Saunders. Quote, The decision to include cultural and art, culture and art in the U.S. Cold War arsenal was taken as soon as the CIA was founded in 1947. Dismayed at the appeal communism still had for many intellectuals and artists in the West, the new agency set up a division called the Propaganda Assets Inventory, which at its peak could influence more than 800 newspapers, magazines, and public information organizations. They joked that it was like a jukebox. When the CIA pushed a button, it could hear whatever tune it wanted playing across the world. <laughs> so Saunders is like an incredible historian. Uh, they wrote a whole book on the CIA's involvement in this cultural <laughs> cold war called Who Paid the Piper, the CIA, and the Cultural Cold War, and it was published in 1999. So if you want, like, a much more thorough, you know, deep dive into the subject, pick it up at your local independent bookstore. I'm sure they sell it. So, okay, how did the CIA, like, contribute or, you know, kind of try to mastermind this whole cultural cold war? So, like the quote said, the CIA was founded after World War II in 1947. By 1950, the CIA secretly created the Congress for Cultural Freedom, also known as CCF, which I will be calling it for this episode. Um, and the whole point of CCF was to counter Comniform. And Comniform, also known as Information Bureau of the Communist and Workers' Party, was an organization with the purpose of coordinating all efforts of all European communist parties to kind of, you know, act the same under the guidance of the Soviet Union. It was not like a worldwide communist party. It was just like an organization that was like, hey, all communist parties, let's act the same, you know, for the purpose of like being anti-imperialist. Mm -hmm. They were essentially trying to wipe out anti-communist sentiments, basically. And so CCF, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, was secretly, you know, put together by the CIA to counter this effort. So... The CCF is formed to counter communism by showcasing U.S. and European high culture. That means music, painting, ballet, writing, and other artistic ventures. Uh, it was founded in Berlin, uh, and at the founding conference, there, it was attended by like some of the leading intellectuals from the U.S. and uh, Western Europe. Everything from writers, philosophers, critics, and historians. The CCF was headed by this guy named Michael Josselson, who was, at the point of its founding, a CIA agent though it wasn't publicly known until much later. Well, yeah, it has to be secret. Secret, secret, secret. So, Jocelyn was integral to CCF's expansion. At the height of its power, CCF had offices in 35 countries, employed a dozen personnel, like dozens and dozens of light personnel, um, and published over 20 prestigious magazines. They had art exhibitions, owned news services, organized high-profile international conferences, toured symphonies, funded research, and rewarded musicians and artists with public performances and different types of prizes. All of this was done to contrast, like, real Western culture to the sham that is Soviet culture. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until 1966 that it was revealed that CCF was a CIA operation. <gasps> Hello? It was founded in 1950, and by 1966, it was revealed that the CIA was behind it all. Uh, in 1966, the New York Times ran a series of five articles chronicling the CIA's false front organizations and the secret transfer of CIA money to various organi organizations for the aim of dismantling pro-communist sentiments. 
the CCF was essentially a massive propaganda machine. So keep that in mind, folks. <sighs> this is so, this goes so far and so deep <laughs> that I can't get into it. But I'm going to give you some examples of like what the CCF was doing. Okay. Uh, there were other branches and departments that the CIA set up to kind of help them with this aim to counter communism. There is one called the Internal Organizations Division, also known as the IOD. The IOD had agents placed in the film industry, publishing houses, people working as travel writers. Um, and as we now know, the IOD was important in promoting a new artistic movement called Abstract Expressionism, which is uh, Jackson Pollock and... Uh, Rothko, if you're familiar with those artists, they're some of mm-hmm. the biggest artists that came post World War II. Um, and like regarding abstract expressionism specifically, there's this former CIA agent, Donald Jameson. He came out, testified, he was like, Yeah, it was all a CIA thing. Whoops. So this is a quote from him about abstract expressionism. Quote. Regarding abstract expressionism, I'd love to be able to say that the CIA invented it, just to see what happens in New York and downtown Soho tomorrow. However, it was recognized that abstract expressionism was the kind of art that made socialist realism, which was basically what was happening in Soviet Union at the time, look even more stylized and more rigid and confined than it was. And that relationship was exploited in some of the exhibitions. And so one could quite adequately and accurately reason that anything that they, the Soviets, criticized was worth support one way or another. What he's saying is that the CAA was knowingly aligning itself with artistic movements in order to dismantle any relevant Soviet art that was happening in, like, you know, the Soviet. So uh, they wanted to discredit Soviet art and promote anything that the Soviet hated, like, as, like, again, a massive oversimplification of what was happening. What kind of art was, were the Soviets putting out? Uh... They're calling it socialist socialist realism. So mm-hmm. think of Jackson Pollock. He's the guy that, you know, dripped paint across the canvas. You know, it's yeah. just like... And then Mark Rothko, he's the guy that has, like, the lines and, like, the colors. Mm-hmm. That's abstract and very expressionistic, whereas in Soviet Russia, it was definitely more realistic. Um, yeah, so, like a portrait of an apple on a table or something. Right. And you, yeah, exactly. So have you seen like Soviet posters from the time, like post-World War II? They're very like, yay, communism, everything's great, love your neighbor. And that was very much not what was happening in abstract expressionism. And Mm -hmm. so the CIA was like, we have to find a way to kind of like tell people in the West that we're better and that they should not be aligning themselves with the communists. Because here's the deal. Post-World War II there was a lot of left-leaning intellectuals in academia, in New York, in the major cities, and a lot of them had kind of dabbled in some form of socialism, some form of communism in their lifetime. And what, you know, the government did not want to happen, and the government being the United States government, they did not want these people to radicalize like Mm -hmm. they had seen happen in the Soviet Union. And so they were trying to align themselves with like the freedom of expression and we're so free and we can do all these amazing things. By doing that, you give the appearance of freedom, whereas it was actually a massive propaganda campaign to kind Mm -hmm. of control the American people and make them think that we're free and we're different from We're abstract. (laughs) Right, we're a democracy. Um, So yeah, 
Very interesting. Um, and so then we're going to get into this term. There's this term that is often used when discussing the CIA and how they pulled off this whole operation uh, without alerting any of the artists as to what they were up to. And it's called long leash. I'm just going to pause here. There's, you know, contrast in the theory about whether or not the artists involved in this movement, this abstract expressionism, or even musicians who were kind of being promoted at the time, like the Boston Symphony was flown from Boston to the Europe to kind of tour around. But that was all like part of this operation by CCF. Did they know it was happening? A lot of people didn't. Some did. Some did, but a lot of people didn't. Um, in order to kind of, you know, put distance between themselves, the CIA, and the artists that they were kind of exploiting and exploiting their work, they used this thing called Long Leash. Uh, and this is from historian Saunders, who we talked about earlier. Matters of this sort could only have been done at two or three removes, which means the CIA was two or three connections removed from whatever artists that they were exploiting at the time. Um, it couldn't have been any closer because most of them, the artists, were people who had very little respect for the government and little respect, and in particular, none for the CIA. So to quote Sanders again, uh, this whole thing became a, quote, vast jamboree of intellectuals, writers, historians, poets, and artists, which were set up with CIA funds in the 50s and run by a CIA, CIA agent. So like a lot of these artists or like symphonies or you know, museums, they were getting all these cool exhibitions or being toured all around the world, or they were given money to kind of make paintings. They were given money through the CIA, but through a different person and a different person. And they yeah. kind of had to be two or three people removed. So Crazy. they didn't know. They didn't know. Supposedly. Supposedly. Some did, some didn't. Another quote from Saunders. Whether they liked it or not, whether they knew it or not, there were few writers, poets, artists, historians, scientists, or critics in post-war Europe whose names were not in some way linked to this covert enterprise. <gasps> it's crazy how many people were involved. So this brings me back to the clue. How did the CIA affect the Paris Review, the MoMA, and the Partisan Review? Let's start with the Paris Review. The New York Times published an article stating that one of the founding editors of the Parish Review, his name is Peter Matheson, was in the CIA and used the magazine as a cover for his spying activities. Uh, and Matheson went on the Charlie Rose talk show in 2008 and said he, quote, invented the Parish Review as cover for his CIA activities. It's crazy. It was a sham the whole time. A sham. Um, and though he claimed the Parish Review was not connected to CCF in any way, so he was saying, like, I acted as a lone wolf. I was a CIA agent, and I used it to spy on people, but it was not connected to this organization that the CIA created. Oh, that's convenient. That's a lie. Um, it was later confirmed that the magazine sold article reprints to the CCF, uh, therefore benefiting financially from the CCF. Uh, it was also later revealed that many of the Parish Review editors repeatedly engaged with the CCF, there were some modest things, you know, like some ad placements here and there, the aforementioned selling of reprints, that kind of stuff. But there are other instances where the Parish Review would team up with the CCF and they would both pay for an editor to go do something or an editor's living expenses in Paris. Um, and of course, it goes deeper. Lots of money exchanging hands, donations, spying. Editors would watch over writers' comings and goings and report back to the CIA. 
that sort of thing. Um, and then like all of this, like I said, was again to stick to the CCF line of anti-communism. Crazy. Uh, let's see. Partisan Review. As I mentioned earlier, Partisan Review was initially a pro-communist magazine, but by the 50s, it was definitely more of a social democratic publication, which is important because it was pro-communist. It could not be part of the CIA's like covert CCF operation. Uh, the founding editor, William Phillips, denied any connection to CCF, but it was later revealed that the magazine received funds from C CCF as part of the Cultural Cold War. Uh, the magazine even received funds in 53 from another organization called American Committee for Cultural Freedom, the ACCF, which was another CIA front organization connected to CCF. And then when ACCF stopped operating, it transferred half of its remaining money to Partisan Review. And there are other instances of money being funnel funneled to Partisan Review in the form of donations, fake foreign magazine subscriptions in order to help the magazine stay afloat, and to continue to help CCF in their cultural Cold War. So then we go to the MoMA. So remember how the CIA was essential to, like, the success of this abstract expressionist movement? Mm hmm So... The CCF put together a lot of abstract expressionist exhibitions during the 50s. Um, but a lot of these exhibits were expensive, difficult to move from place to place. And so the CCF called upon millionaires and museums to help with the cost. This is where Nelson Rockefeller comes in, whose mother co-founded the MoMA. So Rockefeller became one of the biggest financial backers of the abstract expressionist movement, and CCF used his museum to curate most of its important art shows. Um, and another link to the museum, uh, the CCF was, you know, friends with this guy, William Paley. William Paley was one of the founders of the CIA. He also sat on the MoMA's board of international program. Uh, another CIA member, John Hay, was the board's chairman. And then again, another CIA man, Tom Braden, was the museum's executive secretary in 1949. So, like, all of these people were, like, involved in all of these, you know, different artistic Yeah. Well, endeavors. they weren't even trying to hide it at the MoMA, it seems like. No, it, it doesn't seem like they were. But again, this came out in the 60s that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And a lot of magazines were involved in this, like not just the two that I talked about. And it wasn't just the MoMA as a museum. And like I said, the Boston Symphony was fl flown from Boston to tour all over Europe. Louis mm -hmm. Armstrong is somehow tied into this. Like there's tons of it. people. Um, it's really, really interesting. And like I said, there's so much more I can talk about here, but I just wanted to kind of, like I said, scratch the surface. Um, before I finish, I want to say that a lot of magazines that were later revealed to be involved in this kind of CIA front organization business, they eventually folded um, and reputations of the magazines and their editors were essentially destroyed. Other publications were left unscathed, much like the Paris Review, which is still a preeminent literary magazine to this day. If you could publish in the Paris Review, like, that's, like, insane. Like, you mm -hmm. have made it, you know? Um, so, and I can go on. Saunders' book talks about this entire operation, and there are so many interesting articles, like I said, um, that kind of follow these money trails left by the CIA. Uh, and like I said, they funded various magazines, artists, exhibitions, conferences, and then this whole thing was like with the aims of destroying communism, which is funny because that's basically what the CIA did for like the next 50 years. Yeah. So. Seems to be a common thread. Uh, yeah. So interesting things today. Thank you, New Yorker, for a great little... <laughs> Gentle deep dive. <laughs> we put on our tinfoil hats and dove right in. <laughs>
My topic is from the Sunday Washington Post by Evan Bernholz, and it is Five Across Theme Park Since 1982. Bush Gardens. No. <laughs> this is one that comes up a lot in the crossword. Bush Gardens. No, Epcot. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I've never seen Bush Gardens. I haven't either, but in I couldn't crossword. think of literally any other theme park in the entire United States that it could be, so. All right. Well, I'm doing Epcot, a.k.a. the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Oh, my God. Not today, everyone. Tomorrow. You a great, mm, big, beautiful tomorrow. That's not from Epcot, okay? That's in, like, Tomorrowland at MGM, Carousel of Progress. No, that's not even, wait. Oh, shiza. That's yes. in Magic Kingdom. And I'm pretty sure someone died in Carousel of Progress. They got stuck in between the things. But that did. ride's yes. not there anymore. No, it is. No, I thought they replaced it. No. Well, if they replace it, they replace it in the last two years. I think they did. I mean, it needs to go. What, the future is like 80, 1985. <laughs> okay, first of all, rude. I love that ride. It's a great ride to go in. If you've had a long day in the sun, you just need to sit down for 15 minutes, okay? God. Yeah. God. Okay. Yeah, it's a good ride for parents and people like Chelsea. Okay. So Epcot is a Disney park. If you don't know, you will probably recognize it from the giant golf ball it has, which is actually a ride. It is, um, which inside, I didn't know. If you've never been. Yeah. But how did Epcot all start? It has a little bit more of a exciting history, I think, than just oh, a regular okay. old theme park. Do you I remember like I, I know a little bit about how it started. Yes. So, like I said, Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And that's exactly what it was. So, Walt Disney had a vision to create a futuristic utopian city. To quote him directly... Epcot Center will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world of the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. You heard it here first, folks. Okay. All right. He took that to the grave. He did, because he died shortly after. He did. Er, I mean, he died before Epcot could even be built. Okay, so what was his idea? Tell me. This was called the Florida Project. It was five times the size of Disneyland, California, twice the size of the island of Manhattan. There's nothing else in Central Florida, so it's perfect place for it. <laughs> and a giant mono, yeah, <laughs> a giant monorail would run through it from length to length. Okay. There would be five sections: an airport, an entrance center, an industrial park, a theme park, Walt Disney World, and the heart of the Florida Project, Epcot Center. So Epcot Center was, quote, a planned environment demonstrating to the world what American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design. So Walt thought he could design the perfect city. What would the city look like, you might ask? Well, there'd be 20,000 people who were selected to live in the city under a 50-acre climate-controlled snow globe where they would be protected from the elements. Yes, this is all cuckoo bananas to me. Mm-hmm. He's, he is also frozen, right? So this guy had big dreams. Yes. Um, Okay, but also about the snow globe part, some people say that it never had a dome, and then other people swear, yes, was supposed to have a dome over it. So, I don't know, take that up with... (laughs) I I think it has a dome. Kurt Russell said that he talked to Walt Disney World and it told him that there was a dome, and I believe him. I would say that there's a dome, because Walt Disney was like... He thought big. He thought big. He didn't think small folks, okay? He was probably thinking, I'm going to build a dome, and then I'm going to, you know, climate control this crap and have fake like frigging um clouds yes. and he said you shit. could make it rain whenever you wanted how can you Not do that would, without a dome 
Yeah, not that you need to do that in Florida. It rains all the time. Okay, so the uh-huh. circular shape of the city would allow the city to be laid out like a wheel, the hub of transportation in the center with routes branching out like wheel spokes. The center would have all the businesses and high-density apartments, schools, etc., and the outer edges would have residential neighborhoods. At the very center, there would be a 30-floor tower that would serve as a hotel and convention center. And I guess at the time, 30 floors seems I was going to say, 30 like floors is nothing yeah. these days. It was okay. tall at the time, okay? And it actually is tall for Florida. We don't have stuff like that. She's <laughs> like, have you ever been to Dubai, honey? Like, yeah. obviously not. <laughs> um, shopping areas would recreate the experience of markets around the world. Hmm. Does, Does that, that sound, sound familiar? Familiar. Maybe. Okay. I mean, I mean, who knows? I mean, all I have to say right now is that I feel bad for Walt because... Reality. Reality, baby. The main method of transportation would be monorails and people movers, which still exist in Disney parks today. Motorized vehicles would be relegated to the underground roadways. And if you wanted to leave, there was only one exit. I hate this. Yeah. So they basically thought like, well, people would only leave to go on, you know, like weekend trips or vacation. So there's one exit and you had to like, that's, that's really the only time you would use your car. Um, Population being, control. They're trying to control us. Yeah. This whole thing sounds really sketchy to me and scary. I agree. Actually, no, all I agree. of Epcot sounds kind of scary. And there is a movie. Oh, I'm going to look it up and figure out what it's called. There is okay. like a horror movie about a family going to Disney World. Okay. And it's very weird. And talk about abstract. It's very bizarre. Is that okay. like, um, is that by the, the graffiti artist? What? Banksy? Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. Because there's a movie about. I don't think so. No, it's old. Oh, okay. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Continue. I have seen it, but I barely remember it. So people would be encouraged to work, find jobs within the city. Um, and Walt believed that this plan could work in cities all over America. It was Ooh. his last big passion project before he died. So why didn't it get made? Well, Walt Disney was not able to get funding or permission to start work on this uh, Epcot part of the Florida property until he agreed to first build Magic Kingdom. Okay. He died nearly five years before Magic Kingdom opened, so he never broke ground on Epcot. Okay. After his death, everyone was too scared to try and run a city without Walt's guidance. I think everyone was like, this guy was nuts. I'm not making that, cre- that like, scary city. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, also, like, I kind of am glad that nobody wanted to do that, because it just reminds me of, um, did you ever see A Sorry to Bother You? Yeah like these like capitalists these like these they want to create like you know yeah, it's like a black mirror episode exactly they want to create like this is where you live you never have to leave this building you work here you live here you shop here you work out here your kids go to school here and you never have to leave there's only one exit and you have to walk past a security guard and everything's fine until the world collapse collapses and then you they're forcing you into slave labor as horses exactly is that what walt wanted maybe i don't know Okay, so what did they do instead? Tell me. So some Imagineers, which is what they call Disney engineers, <laughs> if you <laughs> don't know. If you didn't uh, know that. They wanted to focus on a park representing the cutting edge of technology and futuristic stuff. But then the others wanted it to be a showcase of international cultures and customs. Okay. So they did both. If you've ever gone to oh Epcot, uh, yeah. you would know that. Basically, one half of Epcot is, quote, futuristic, and I will... You know, it tries to be futuristic. Right. And then the other is like a World's Fair type of thing where there is like a Norway and a Morocco and they basically make little replicas of other countries and they have um, people you know, from food. those countries yeah. who work there. Yeah. 
it's a whole thing. They do a good job. Yeah. And you can also drink. I think that's one of the only, or I don't know, it used to be like one of the only places in Disney where you could get alcohol. Right. I think that has changed, but yeah, yeah. it is great. Like if you want to do, go ahead, continue. Definitely We're for talk adults. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Epcot was constructed for an estimated $800 million to $1.4 billion. It took three years to build. And at the time, it was the largest construction project on earth. It opened on October 1st, 1982. Wow. So we're almost up on some type of anniversary. Okay. Yeah, right. But what happened with Epcot? Because oh. I feel like, I mean, some nerds might say Epcot is their favorite park. I think it's definitely more popular among adults. Um, mm-hmm. Just if, if you don't know, I grew up in South Florida. So we went to Disney World a lot. A lot of school trips would go to Disney World. And we always went to Epcot because they could push it as like an educational field trip. Right. But we were I... never excited to go to epcot we were like can we go to magic kingdom instead like we kind of groaned to go to epcot because there was at the time there was really no rides there they really wasn't i think like the first time i ever went to disney i was 16 years old and so i I didn't get to go to disney as a kid Mm -hmm. i went sort of older i loved the world showcase um i will i would say epcot is probably one of my favorite of the disney parks but also i really like drinking in all of the different (laughs) like you know countries so yeah. that tells you why you go to epcot to do like can you make it around the world drinking something in each country like that's what i do in epcot so <laughs> I, I actually have never been to epcot as someone who's over 21 so i'll take never you there one there. day yeah i feel like i've gone to epcot so many times though over it okay she's over it. so but basically what is what is kind of like the downfall of epcot I think it's because they tried to make it super futuristic, but this was in the early 80s. So their idea of futuristic quickly became outdated. When I was going to Epcot in the 90s and early 2000s, it already seemed like yeah. a Chuck E. Cheese animatronics in the right. you yeah. know, no, giant sure. golf ball. Um, so to maintain attendance levels, Disney started introducing seasonal events such as the International Flower and Garden Festival and the International Food and Wine Festival in 1994 and 1995. Again for adults yes and that became something that people really that epcot was really known for yeah uh they also started phasing out edutainment attractions for more modern rides Mm -hmm. for example universe of energy was reconfigured as ellen's energy adventure in 1996 do you think they're gonna get rid of ellen's energy adventure yeah they changed (gasps) it okay but not because of the recent stuff okay um world of motion which i don't even remember i don't know became test track test track is amazing yeah test track is you're basically driving around in this car and well it's you're not actually driving it's on a track but it does all these you know tests like it goes over bumpy things and really steep hills and i don't know really quick yeah it's the best you can get it epcot um okay mission space is there is so good yes horizons was demolished in 1999 and replaced with mission space okay sorry (laughs) mission space basically it's like a really fancy version of the gravitron yeah Um, and you get you kind of like you're there's four of you in like a car and you have to like command space shuttle yeah and and you have to like hit buttons and stuff but you're you know pressed up against the back of the seat yeah do not go on there if you get motion sick uh i learned that the hard way yeah, I went on when I was little, and we went there when when it first opened, probably in 1999 or 2000. I went on it like four times in a row without my family. Oh, to Dude. be young again and not yeah. get not get sick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The Living Seas was closed in 2005 and rethemed with the introduction of characters from Finding Nemo as the Seas with Nemo and Friends. Okay, so they definitely are trying to pull in those kids. I see it because when I was a little kid, I wasn't really that interested in in Epcot. 
but they're trying to, they're doing what they can. Yeah. In November 2016, Disney revealed that Epcot would be receiving a major transformation that would help transition the park into being more Disney, timeless, relevant, and family friendly, (laughs) while keeping the original vision alive. Yeah. So in 2017, they announced that Epcot would undergo a multi-year redesign, which is still going on today, and the expansion plan includes um, introducing Guardians of the Galaxy and Ratatouille into uh, Epcot. They also introduced, I think, um, Frozen into Norway, I believe. which makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Because before it was just the theme of Norway was just trolls. It was also like, yeah, and there was like a Viking ride, which I liked. Yeah, but the Viking ride was about a troll. Yeah. So that'll probably be t- turned into some type of frozen ride. Yeah. Okay, but it wasn't enough. That same year, in 2017, the park rep- reported the first drop in overall attendance, ranking among the four Walt Disney World Resorts parks, dropping from second to third place for the first time in its history. Wow. In 2019, at the D23 Expo, they announced more changes. They're going to create four distinct neighborhoods. World Celebration... Or world celebration, which is the home of, quote, new experiences that connect us to one another and the world around us, whatever that means. Right. World nature, which is all about preserving nature, which will feature some Moana stuff. World Ooh. discovery, which is stories about space, science, technology, i.e. where Guardians of the Galaxy ride will be. Okay. And then world showcase, um, which is what they have now with all the different countries Countries. and this will remain the same mostly with a few additions france and the uk will get some ratatouille and mary poppins additions respectively oh my god actually yes mary poppins please thank (laughs) you for that for sure (laughs) okay so that is basically what's going on with ebcot today they're trying their best to like become a little more hip and fresh because yes the the golf ball ride at ebcot is so janky oh my god and they actually they make you like it seems like they're trying to be like so hip and like we're so futuristic and they like take your picture and like put it on like a basically like a like a digital card you would have set on AOL yeah. at like <laughs> 1998 or something and it's like it wow. is it's like trying to be futuristic but everything feels like it's 1995 although i guess <laughs> if it came out in like the early 80s it was probably, probably impressive was. at that time yeah. only for a couple of years God. okay so Walt Disney World's Epcot community, where people would live, never came to fruition. Although some people are like, well, what about Celebration Florida? Is that like Disney City? And I'm here to say, no, Celebration Florida is a sham, okay? What is Celebration Florida? Okay, if you don't know. Celebration Florida (laughs) is Disney's city. So it's located, well, kind of. It's located in Osceola County, Florida, which I have never been to. And it was built in 1994, it was supposed to be like it's Disney City, uh, but it was not modeled after Epcot because Epcot was all about like advancing technology sure. and all this stuff. But this is just like, you know, like basically a gated community. Um, it's not technologically advanced. It's not circular. And most importantly, it is not in a dome. Right. Open okay. air. Yeah. yeah. So wake up, sheeple. The buildings are all designed by Imagineers, so the downtown is all, like, pastel and Disney-like, but you won't find, like, a Mickey Mouse statue anywhere. There's no... The stores aren't Disney-themed names or anything. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. No. (laughs) And then, in 2004, about a decade after creating it, Disney sold it to a private equity company for $6.5 million. Oh, convenient. Gotta love it. So, the the town... Like, this is my problem with the town. It was slated as being like disney's city right right but it's not within a tram ride of the parks okay it's pretty small there's only 7500 residents most live in condos or rented houses that they live in part-time 
Um, it does have a walkable downtown and this like very cool retro movie theater, but the movie theater has been closed since 2010. There's okay. no grocery stores. So Where anything you, you need, yeah, you need to go out of town. And kind of there is not... DoorDash it. <laughs> yeah. There's not an underground tunnel, one exit to get out of town. You can just drive out normally, but still. Oh, okay. 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 So they're not keeping you prisoner, at least. Yeah. Then there's also the racism issue. All right. So the OG spots in Celebration were raffled off. I think it was like a $1,000 ticket you had to buy, which already sets the, you know, price of entry high to get mm-hmm. in. And supposedly, Disney did advertise to Black and Hispanic demographics. However, the community is 88% white when compared to the surrounding area, which is only 59% white. Okay. okay. This is in South Florida, remember? Yeah. So some people blame it on the fact that instead of building subsidized housing inside the community, Disney opted to donate $900,000 to Osceola County, Florida, to help area residents buy houses under 80 grand, which is way below the market value of any houses in celebration. So they were kind of encouraging low-income residents to buy houses in Osceola County instead i'm sure that was like some if they had those in the contract if they had to build there they either had to offer subsidized housing in celebration or like give money some to residents of, yeah. mm-hmm. i also think maybe only white people would want to live in a town like celebration <laughs> you know yeah, it could honestly. be that <laughs> yeah like i'm white and i don't even want to live there so it had to be like a special kind of white to want to live yeah. there <laughs> you know the type um in 2016 wall street journal reported that celebration town center condominium owners are battling leaky roofs balconies that have been come separated from the sides of buildings and mold spreading in their walls their properties have become so dilapidated they say they're having trouble selling them right, uh, so it does not sound like much of a celebration to me no 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 sorry i have to move him because he's just gonna purr the whole time you have to go i know but you have okay to. tune in i'm not cutting this tune in <laughs> Her like, cat is here. Claw on to me, dude. <laughs> chill. Okay, Arnold loves her so much and just won't let her go. He hates me all day until I record. <clears throat> okay, so that's Celebration, Florida. So if you ever hear someone be like, "No, Disney does have a city. It's Celebration, Florida." Tell them, "No, Disney doesn't even own it anymore, and it's not even that nice." Yeah, you um, idiots. There are some plans of opening a residential city closer to the parks, like outside Magic Kingdom. Don't fall for it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's some people who really love Disney who would like that. Just, I, I mean, just join the, sure. the DVC then. Like, why? Um, okay, so some facts about Epcot. Yes. There's there's so many. So I'm just going to end off with some trivia facts about Please. Epcot. Okay, Spaceship Earth, which is what the giant golf ball is, mm-hmm. weighs 16 million pounds. And not okay. only that, but Ray Bradbury, who was a good friend of Walt Disney, conceived the original storyline and penned the original script for the ride. Thanks, Ray. (laughs) If you don't think Epcot is creepy and, like, weird dystopian, it is. It is. The food grown in Epcot greenhouses is actually used in the restaurants there. It is. Actually, Mm -hmm. I've done the the food tour where if you go into, I don't know, if you walk into Epcot and you turn right, uh, you know, right away, it takes Mm -hmm. you into, like, just, I don't know, whatever part of Epcot that is, you can actually take a little boat tour where it'll take you like this is how we grow food at disney and then you can take a behind the scenes food tour which we've done because my dad is a crazy disney adult um and you get to actually walk through all the fish like the fish rooms where they grow their fish and like they grow fish they have schools of fish that they raise and you can walk the greenhouses and they actually grow they started like you know growing 
food food from like the ceilings down and they can like shape them into the shape of dis like mickey heads and things like that and it's like all very kitschy so they i, they, I read that they won like a guinness world record for most tomato growth or something interesting good for yeah. them i guess They're doing a good job okay two people have died after <gasps> riding mission space Oh, my God. One was a four-year-old with an undiagnosed heart condition, and the other was an older woman who suffered a stroke due to high blood pressure. So, was it, I mean, I mean, pre-existing conditions, but still. Also, I feel like four is a little young to go on mission space. They must have been a tall four-year-old. Yeah. Um, The score for Soarin' Over California was composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who said he loved the project so much he would have done it for free. Goldsmith's other scores include The Omen, Planet of the Apes, Alien poltergeist in rudy okay so other than rudy um, he does like scary movie scores so again um, epcot is creepy um i really liked soren by the way when yeah, it first but- released and we used to wait hours to get onto that damn ride no that one is a good one um okay the rose and crown pub in the uk has a special machine that can cool your guinness to exactly 55 degrees which oh. is the temperature recommended by the company so i love the rose and crown pub there okay they sell fish and chips they do the whole thing it's great it's like you're in london oh my god uh contrary to some popular beliefs i never thought this but for the most part the countries in the world showcase are not funded by that country's government except two morocco and norway not okay. 100% funded, but they did give some money. Okay. Morocco's King Hassan II reviewed a detailed scale model of the Morocco Pavilion for authenticity and artistic effect. Interesting. Was, most other countries, like, couldn't care less. Right. They're uh, like, whatever. Morocco I... was, like, excited to have, um, <laughs> you know, they, they thought sure. it was cool. And uh, Illumination Night or whatever, mm-hmm. which is when they light up everything, they don't light up a lot of the buildings in Morocco because a lot of them have, like, religious uh connotations or something so out of respect interesting they don't light them up so okay. if you're wondering yeah, illuminations is the epcot version of like fireworks and i believe they actually removed illuminations and added real fireworks instead so it's not just a laser light show anymore i think laser light show very 80s very okay. much <laughs> cats the, um, very much <laughs> <laughs> the american pavilion is built at a slightly higher elevation than all the other countries my god america am i right folks mm-hmm um disney brings in water to the italy pavilion from pennsylvania because it is most similar to the water in uh, naples italy the idea is that using a very similar water source um in the pizza dough makes it more authentic interesting will stop at nothing they will stop at nothing they're nuts okay and then this is the last one that made me laugh so the eiffel tower replica in france is much smaller um, than it appears. In fact, Disney is so insecure about how small the Eiffel Tower is that they supposedly use bird repellent on the structure because they fear that a bird perched atop the tiny tower would give away the illusion. Okay. I, and I like, like I've kn- always said, it's not about the size of your <laughs> Eiffel Tower. Okay. It's about how you use your bird repellent. It's true. It's true. Um, I do have to say, I really like Epcot, like, as a park in Disney, but like I said, I do it for the drinking around the world thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, when I first turned 21, and, like, we went to Disney for the first time, and I was like, I can drink in every single co- I made it to, like, four countries before I got so drunk, and we went to, di- to dinner in, like, downtown Disney or something like that, or, like, on the boardwalk at Disney. I don't remember dinner at all. Like, that's how drunk I got. And I only drank See, it for I, I have, like, countries. no desire to get drunk at Disney because it's so damn expensive to go there. It's like, I need to be remembering every second of this. 
No, I, I feel you. I mean, yeah, like if, if my dad is paying for uh, my alcohol, then I, I don't feel bad about it. Um, so, yeah, I love Japan in the World Showcase at Disney. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most interesting, um, you know, World Showcase. They have, like, yeah. Yeah, they, they have, pagodas. have like, they have pagodas. They have the most interesting, like, shop, you know? Like, you go into, like, England shop, and it's like, you can buy tea and crunchy bars and which is like yay i like that but Mm -hmm. also like in japan like they have i mean what's really cool about all the different locations is you have people from those countries working there um and like so you walk into japan and there's japanese people working there and there's like all these cool japanese cultures and you can buy kimonos there which i is a little bit you know um questionable but um it's cool and you can also do this thing where they have oysters in the japan (laughs) section where like you can pick an oyster and they'll open it and like you get a pearl out of it um so if you're interested in doing something like that you can well another thing a trivia fact i came across was that there was a woman who worked in uh japan at disney world and she made you know those figurines out of brown rice or like tiny Mm -hmm. animals out of brown rice she is the only woman um, whatever that is called, like the only woman artist who does that in the world. I don't know now, but at the time the article was written, she retired in like 2013. Wow. But, yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And she was um, a Disney baby. Yeah. I See, I really like rides. So Epcot is not my favorite because there's not a lot of rides, but it's fun. I mean, I would go if given yeah. the opportunity, but. Yeah. I feel like if you and I were down in Florida and we were given the opportunity to go to Epcot, like free of cost, like we would go and have fun. Um, I like Epcot because they don't have that many rides. I'm not as into rides as Grace is. I will, like, yeah. ride, like, Mission Space, maybe, and Test Track, probably. But if you try and... I'm like, I'll ride one of the roller coasters once. But if you're trying to do, like, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or whatever the heck it's called, like, more than once, I am not doing it. Anyways, that is Epcot. And now it makes me want to go to Disney. But who knows when the next time I'm able to go to any type of theme park will be. Uh, yeah, let's hope relatively soon. Um, because actually I would like to do that because I'm not usually one that's like craving a theme park, but since I've basically lived in the same four walls for the last six months, I'm uh, getting a you little You always want crazy. what you can't have. It's true, folks. Ain't that the truth. It's true. All right. Well, if you don't want us, you can still have us and you can follow <laughs> us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls. Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. Please come say, hey, we like a good time. We do. Sometimes. Um, but until then just relax everyone (laughs) yeah okay don't like come into our space too much don't bombard us okay because like it's we're a little sensitive but we do like people occasionally so at a distance (laughs) anyways when they're uh, not looking at us (laughs) we will see you next week have a great one bye Bye -bye. everyone we're the good evening girls bye